Hello listeners, it's Josiah Sinanin, the host of Anti-Culture, and I'm back for the next batch of episodes for season five of the show. I couldn't be more excited to share more stories with you. I am now officially recording from beautiful Windsor, Ontario, and even though I'm somewhere new, my mission remains the same on the show, and I'm so grateful you're joining me for more. Thank you for your patience after my small hiatus as I got settled and moved, and I have to confess, I really, really miss this, so I hope you miss me too. If you're a new listener, welcome to Anti-Culture. I started this podcast five years ago now to express something very deep in my heart, and it's something I still struggle to put into words, even after all the times I've explained it on the show. Anti-Culture is a little different than your classical podcast. It is all about highlighting my guests themselves, and I like to profile and choose people that would be people that you'd classically put into a box, and I slowly take them out and challenge the assumptions you might be subconsciously or consciously having about them. So my role is to introduce you, the listener, to a broadened perspective. This isn't about convincing you of that perspective, it's about teaching us how to listen with intent. And oftentimes on the show I've had people that I blatantly disagree with, but the whole practice of anti-culture is listening to what people's worldviews are. So on this show, you get me. I'm truly a lover of all people and perspectives, and I love being curious and empathetic. I love to be put in a position where I can walk in someone else's shoes, if only for 45 minutes. And I want to bring you with me. The show is called Anti-Culture, not because I'm against culture, but rather because I want to redefine what we think of when we think of culture. In North America, I find that culture is a bit of a limiting term. Maybe when you think of the word culture, you think of someone's race, heritage, or external features, and you automatically throw them into this box with a prepackaged group of other automatic assumptions, but you haven't heard from themselves. So as a culturally ambiguous and mixed race individual myself, I found this habit of ours was extremely evident to me growing up, and it's that same frustration of having assumptions put on me that has made me hypersensitive to really listen to the people around me especially if they don't share my worldview. I aim to take your thinking the same direction. Today's guest is someone I honor deeply, particularly after reading his fantastic book, Life in the City of Dirty Water. Clayton Thomas Mueller is more than an author. He's an activist, he's an environmentalist, he is an indigenous man who claims his German father's name. So in his book, he takes the average Canadian on a journey into a world many of us have ignored or refused to see. Clay is a member of the Treaty 6, based in Pukatawagan in northern Manitoba, and today he is a senior campaign specialist for 350.org, a movement that works to respond to the climate crisis, and for him in particular, the lands of his people that are threatened. His book is also a contender for this year's Canada Reads competition, and when I finished reading it myself, my worldview had shifted, and I was challenged in ways that I haven't been in many years. So you're welcome to join us as we talk about Clayton's life progression from the trapline days to his life in Winnipeg, all the way to the UN government offices, and then back to the sweat lodge. He has so much to share, and I'm really grateful he's on this week. I encourage you to listen with intent and take up a chair our conversation. Danse, bonjour. Um, my name is Clayton Thomas Mueller. I'm a Cree man from Pugatawagan Cree Nation here in uh, Manitoba. And, uh, but I live here in the city of Winnipeg in Treaty 1 territory. 
uh, home of the Métis Nation. And uh, yeah, I'm the author of uh, Life in the City of Dirty Water. And that's the city you're in, the city of the dirty water. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Winnipeg, actually, in my language, uh, means uh, murky or muddy water. That's the literal translation, hence the title of my memoir. I have to say your book really rocked me in so many ways. I feel like it's, uh, I've never read anything like that, if I'm honest. I, it's a worldview and perspective that I was never really exposed to. And it was so, uh, I think it's just so important because there's so many different worlds that you lived in. You talk about your gang life. You talk about being in, uh, how do you say it? Puketawagan? Uh Puketawagan. Pukatawagan. Okay, yeah. I'm gonna remember that. It looks just like it, like it sounds phonetically. Like it looks, it's Pukatawagan. So yeah. that that in my language is the it, directly translated. It's like Pukatawagan. It's like the literal act of throwing out the fishnet into the water. Wow. Yeah. It's just it. It was just really uh, eye opening. And I, I grew up in Canada. I have a mixed race family, and uh, I've always been intrigued by that way of life. But I'm, I'm curious, what was there a moment before you wrote this book where you're like, I have to write this story about what it's like being Indigenous in Canada? Was there a moment for you where that came up? Um, no, I mean, like the origin story of, you know, why I decided to write a memoir, especially, you know, so early in my life, you know, I'm only 44, turning 45 this summer. Um, you know, the, the, the writing thing came more so out of recommendation you know, for mental health. I was in therapy, you know, I'm a big believer in therapy. And my day job is is pretty stressful. You know, I'm constantly traveling. And, you know, I, I, you know, it's my job to support the transition, you know, of the Canadian economy off of fossil fuel in response to the global climate crisis. And, uh, you know, so so all day long, you know, I'm dealing with uh, pretty wild events and, um, you know, crazy circumstances. And uh, so I go to therapy and try to go to ceremonies lots and, you know, just take care of my, my state of mind so that, you know, my other duties in life, like being a father and stuff, you know, I can, I can try to achieve balance, but it's a struggle. And certainly uh, a number of years ago when my sons were very young, um, I was having a hard time, like doing the day-to-day -day tasks of parenting them and like just doing things like playtime or, um, um, you know, like homework, that sort of thing. And uh, I would just go into autopilot. And so I talked to my therapist about the phenomenon that was going on. And, you know, he was like, oh, yeah, like that's totally normal for survivors of Indian residential school or for the children of survivors of Indian residential school to, you know, you know, display patterns of disassociative behavior, especially in relation to parenting, you know, because you, your kids are mirrors. And when you look at them, you know, whatever age they're at, they reflect back to you the memories that you have of that age. And so, you know, I, I, you know, having gone through quite a lot of challenges growing up, you know, like, I guess, seeing my kids at four and six was bringing back a lot of a lot of memories that I had, had kind of hidden away. And um, so my therapist, he's like, yeah, you know, keep going to ceremonies, come to therapy, you know, like maybe try to lose a little bit of weight, like exercise, eat healthy, you know, and, and maybe start journaling, like start writing about the, the, the traumas that you, you faced growing up and, you know, write about the good stuff too. So I wrote a book, but it was like way too screwed up to publish. Like it would have re-traumatized like a bunch of friends and relatives that I'm still on life's journey with. And so I, uh, 
you know, I went back to the drawing board and I asked my, uh, my co-director, Spencer Mann, um, who actually helped direct Life in the City of Dirty Water, the, the short documentary. It's on CBC Gem. The listeners can tune into CBC Gem or watch it on YouTube. It's got the same title as the book. But yeah, Spencer and I have been making like, like, like high impact, like social me- digital social media content, collaborating on that for a number of years in the global climate movement and indigenous rights movement. You know, we brought cameras down to Standing Rock and to different big mass mobilizations over the years, the People's Climate March in New York, you know. So yeah, when you're on Facebook or wherever and you see like a two to three minute like video that makes you want to go out and you know, like hold, hold the man accountable, you know, kind of thing. We've, we've been doing that stuff for a while. And so I said to him, I said, well, we're always traveling together anyway. Why don't you like in the spirit of like oral history and unwritten language, record me, tell my life story on video. And, uh, and, uh, and then, you know, and then we'll see where it goes, you know, but I'm, I'm trying to like, I'm trying to document a bunch of things to, to heal, you know, from the violence of colonization he's like oh that sounds sick so we did it for like over a year you know recording and I even flew him into Winnipeg a few times um you know do recording here and eventually we ended up with you know over 100 hours of of storytelling and we took the audio from that and we piped it through google voice to text in the google tool set and it spit out the manuscript that we then edited and became the memoir that uh, was published through Alan Lane Penguin. So, yeah. Wow, that's incredible. And I think, I don't know, I, I mean, everyone, as we go through life, our lives are our lives, right? Like, we just see it as it happens to us. But I think it's pretty significant. I feel like you've had such an incredibly diverse life experience so far. Maybe let's uh, let's take it back a little bit and tell us a little bit about your summers, your summers in your land and what that was like and what you remember from that. It's really interesting because you also mentioned in the book, it's like one of the more dangerous parts of Canada, but then there's also this beauty to it. Can you kind of explain what that, what that was like? Oh yeah. Well, you know, I mean, I don't know, you know, sometimes when I, when I think back to my memories being a child and, you know, it's, 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 it's really wild because eh? the memory is such a bizarre thing. It, 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 quite often memory to me, it, it seems like a old sitcom that I used to watch that no longer exists. And that isn't necessarily politically correct either for the time that we're living in. You know what I mean? Like, like, like a lot of the conversation and stuff in memory wouldn't fly today. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, like, like as far as the way that our society has changed and the national discourse has changed, especially around colonialism and patriarchy and, you know, like just a lot of different issues. And, but, but what I recall like going home was just how incredibly different going back to the trap line was like, you know, I grew up here in, in the West End in Winnipeg and in the North End and um, my memories of the city, you know, are, are like art deco kind of styled buses and like exchange district and when I was a child like Portage and Main Street had like rows of lights all the way down them they were like these tunnels of light with like booming businesses like Selkirk Avenue in the north end was super busy it was like a big Ukrainian community um you know rich Ukrainian history in the north end here in Winnipeg and 
I remember I have that set of memories and walking with my mother throughout the streets of Winnipeg, you know, as a little child and she didn't have a car. And, uh, but I also remember, um, you know, how she would bust her ass to get me every summer up North to spend time with my great grandparents in the bush. And, um, you know, I, I just, I just can't describe the incredible abundance that existed in our family's trap line. Like when you're a little kid on the trap line, your whole day consists of play. You know, you're out in the meadow picking raspberries, picking wild strawberries, you know, picking blueberries, cranberries. Um, you know, like the, the, there's a point in the day when, you know, in the morning when the, the uncles will go out and pull the net up out of the lake and get fish, you know, and then there's time after breakfast, you know, where you go for a walk with great grandfather on the trap line. You know, this is a trail that he's been walking for decades to check the snares for rabbits, for rabbit stew. And, you know, and anytime you got hungry while playing and exploring in the forest or in the meadow or swimming at the lake, um, anytime you got hungry, there was always a pot of fish stew or like rabbit stew, you know, stew on the wood stove. There's always campfire bannock, you know, and you just eat. And there's always fresh jam. They made it daily, you know, my, my great grandparents. And it was like this wild month away from, you know, the hustle and bustle of the city life and this like beautiful time where animals and plants become alive. It's almost like they talk to you, like not like Walt Disney, like like cheesy, like raccoons being your best friend and Pocahontas type shit. But like, you know, it was more like like you could just feel the life force of beings that you are sharing the biosphere with. Like I have a memory from being a toddler, like on the trap line and sitting on the little dock we had and watching the uncles go out <clears throat> to get the fishnet. And I remember looking down at my tummy and I had a little pot belly, like a little toddler. And then I remember looking out over the lake and seeing like a pretty little family of ducks, like a, like a mother duck and the ducklings. And, and then I remember the mother duck just disappearing. And then one by one, each of the ducklings disappearing because like the, the northern pikes that grow in my territory are like they're wolves of the water, right? And so they eat, they eat ducks, baby beavers. I mean, like they'll even bite you when you're swimming if you get too close to the big muskies. Eh? And they got dog teeth. And so I remember watching that and watching my uncles pull fish out of the same lake and, you know, splashing around on the shoreline. And it just like, it, it was a ferocious moment, you know, but, but also just natural. And I felt no fear in seeing an entire family of ducks devoured by the wolf of the water. Um, I just thought it was kind of neat. I was like, Whoa, Oh, wow. Oh, wow. Jeez. <laughs> That's so cool. It, it sounds like the promised land, honestly, even just reading about it in your book, I'm like, man, that sounds like that's how life should be. Yeah, you know, and like, the, you know, I'm, well, it makes me think of this meme I saw on social media where it's like, the world is $11 trillion in debt. And uh, we're all working to pay off this debt. But like, who the hell do we owe the money to? Like, why are human beings paying rent to live on the one planet we live on? Like, seriously, like, how did... <laughs> Are there alien overlords that we're like paying rent to that are really angry? Like, no, it's just, I don't know. So I think that like the memories that I have of the trap line are of a type of freedom that just doesn't exist within this capitalist free market system that we live in that promotes this sense of hyper individualism, 
hyper-individual consumerism and capitalism. And it, 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 it produces a type of values that quite frankly disassociates and disconnects our connection to the sacredness of place and nature. And I think that that's resulted in a great, great mental health sickness, depression, greed, um, a lot of things that are manifesting in our society because we don't have that connection to the sacredness of place. And it, you know, that, that bright fire in our bellies does not ignite when that is threatened, you know, um, in the way that it does say a bully is trying to pick on your child or something like, you know, that, that activation of fight or flight. We don't get that right now when we see environmental calamities take place and we see mother nature being disrespected. You know, that, that kind of feeling comes from being connected, you know, to things and having value in them. And so, yeah, I'm very, very thankful for the time I spent as a child, you know, in, in, in the bush. Yeah, it's uh, something that really, I think maybe one of the most uh, impactful things for me reading your book is I think kind of what you're describing when you grow up in that over commercialized world, the way that you look at nature is different. And I think that's influenced how we see the environmental fight because growing up, like my, my experience with that understanding was very uh, scientific. It was very like, we have to do this because of the resources and because of, you know, it wasn't a spiritual thing. It wasn't something that was like, it. I feel like your book took me that step beyond. Like, this is why uh, environmentalism is important. It's not because of all these numbers we have to adhere to. It's not because of this system that we're trying to fix. It's like, there's, we should feel this pain when we see the earth being treated the way it is. And something that you've been pretty involved in too is especially discussions with the uh, pipelines and the oil fields and I know you mentioned the tar sands in Alberta too and which was really crazy for me to read I mean I grew up in Alberta so I think we're presented it in a different way and when it comes from an indigenous perspective all of a sudden you see it in the light that I think it's meant to be uh, seen in so yeah I don't know like is that can you share a bit more about that like specifically maybe the resource extraction that we see in Canada and why that's harmful to not only your people but everyone well you know I mean, I was just talking, uh, you know, sitting here with my, uh, my youngest boy and my nephew who, who stays with me and um, we're having a coffee and a tea. And uh, we were looking at the, the titles of the, the five books of Canada Reads, you know, it's, there's, you know, some wild competition there, you know, like, like really, really powerful titles, really powerful stories. Um, and, uh, and, you know, my book's a part of the competition this year, which I'm really excited about. And, you know, these are all some heavy race discussion type books, right? Like super, you know, unpacking like all of the kind of interpersonal, internalized and systemic forms of racism that exist in Canada. And, you know, and, and one thing I said to my sons is I said, you know, it's, this is a really good thing that we're having this conversation that Canada Reads does this, but the one crown jewel missing from this collection of stories about oppression and overcoming challenges in, 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 the, in the context of these lands they call Canada is the book about the white man, you know, taking responsibility for how they continue to benefit off of these systems that were created by colonialism. 
you know, and, and I said, you know, my boys, climate change was caused by colonialism. It is colonialism, you know. The only difference is, is that it's corporate CEOs and, and suits coming into our communities instead of Jesuit priests, but they're still talking the same game, you know, change the way you communicate to the sacredness of Mother Earth by entering into the industrialization game, um, you know, and, it, it, but today it's like, you know, build a pipeline and afford to play ball in this economy. And, you know, the reality of it is, is that it's just a neo form of colonialism. It's the same thing, you know, with Canadians talking about residential school, they think residential school and its impact is over, but it's just a new player. Residential school today is called child and family services. And there are more indigenous kids living in care of non-native social workers, non-native families, um, than there ever was in a in 150 years of residential school. There are more kids under care of the state today, native kids, than 150 years of residential school. And you know, and all of this is happening real time. Well, the discovering and you know uncovering you know tens of thousands of unmarked graves. You know, 130 plus residential schools in the country. They've explored, I think, uh, under 20 of them so far, and they've already uncovered 10,000 unmarked graves of children who never made it home. But I said to my boys, I said, you know, until, until racism becomes a white person's problem, you know, our, our, our population in Canada is comprised of 80% European settler presenting individuals, right? And, and, and so, you know, colonialism, anti-Blackness, anti-Muslim, you know, a lot of these issues continue to persist um, because we're not taking a radical, you know, kind of critical race theory, kind of anti-colonial, you know, anti-oppressive approach to building, you know, our vision of the, the, the future of the Canadian economy. And, you know, we've got, you know, these converse, these, these issues have to be discussed and become issues in the so-called dominant segment of our society. And I think like when we talk about the Alberta tar sands, that is quite possibly the biggest manifestation on planet Earth of how wrong capitalism is. You know, we've literally hit the ecological ceiling for the free market expansion of, of capitalism. Like we, 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 we can't put any more carbon into the atmosphere. 99% scientific consensus across the planet. Uh, about the fact that climate change is man-made. And in Canada, our entire economic system and its success uh, under its current regime is fundamentally based on dispossessing Indigenous peoples from their territory, suppressing our collective rights um, to assert title um, you know, over our territories and water. Um, and, and, and the urbanization and disenfranchisement of us to become everyday taxpaying citizens instead of collective rights holding members of Indigenous nations that Canada has a, a, a fiduciary and legal obligation to through the trust relationship uh, between the government and Indigenous nations. And these are complex legal parameters that most people don't know about, you know, and have, they don't educate about this stuff in school. And a lot of people yeah. don't want to even agree that that's happening. You know, it's very, uh, it's not something we want to face. And you, you encapsulated it in that one sentence, like this is just uprooting the Indigenous people. It's, it's destroying land, it's destroying families. 
Well, and we're in such a, a, a interesting, uh, you know, unveiling of, of the challenges of our economic system and, and the way that, that, that we take care of each other as human beings and of, of the biosphere, you know, and, and, and I think that, that for, for, for a lot of, a lot of non-Indigenous peoples transitioning off of fossil fuel is good for them as well. You know, my father work, works in the, the, the tar sands, you know, he's been a, been a worker there and, you know, that's how he, he paid for, um, you know, us kids was working for extractive industries, the, the timber industry before that. And, you know, and a lot of my relatives have worked and um, have worked in the, um, the industry as well. So for me, um, it's a very close thing. You know, my my book is 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 dedicated actually to my cousin Charlton Bud. Um, you know, and he was a tar sands worker, and he got laid off and had a bunch of really hard times that came from that, and he ended up taking his own life um, because of it. And that's the story of a lot of workers, you know, that are working in the industry right now. While these corporations are recording record profits, there are record numbers of native and non-native workers in the sector that are losing their jobs, that are getting laid off because of automation. Um, you know, not because of fucking hippies and, and, and indigenous activists, you know, it's because of hard science and because of, you know, automation and technological advancement and like efficiency that's killing these jobs but the government and industry will have you believe that it's you know these these crazy natives and these crazy environmentalists that are pushing you know fake science and fake news and f with your freedom you know there's there's a lot of economic anxiety discourse out there that's being utilized by proponents of this type of business as usual it's, it's one of the greatest fights of our time um but you know there's a lot of really incredible young people that are hella woke now that are responding to the calls from indigenous peoples and from communities that are impacted by climate calamities, um, you know, to, to put pressure on the government and on decision makers to get us the hell off of this fossil fuel. You know, it's driving war, it's driving, you know, poisoning of our waters and it's destroying our ability to live on the planet. Hmm. Yeah, yeah. Well, thank you for uh, your role in that and inspiring even a new perspective in myself. Something that I thought was really cool in your book is like you talking about keeping your German name and how you feel this German sense of your identity, partly because of your stepdad that helped raise you. And now you're raising mixed race children. And I'm wondering how that experience as an indigenous person shaped how you view humanity and, and the concept of culture. Well, it's a real mind flip, eh? Like, like, you know, yeah, like that's a big one. Um, you know, writing this memoir was was a tough slog. You know, it, it 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 opened up a lot of wounds, a lot of trauma in my life that I had been carrying, and I didn't realize how much it was affecting me. Um, but yeah, you know, like unpacking, you know, forty years of of, of white supremacy and, and toxic patriarchy, and and you know all this programming that comes, you know, with growing up, not in your own society and, you know, under occupation, it was a lot. And then now, you know, on top of dealing with my own healing journey, I've got, you know, I'm responsible for these two young, you know, Cree uh, children that are, you know, teenagers now. And they're, you know, their mother's Mennonite. 
and um yeah you know it's 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 a really complex thing to be raising kids um in a mixed race you know in environment and uh but that said you know it's it's interesting, eh? Because like in the native community too, we deal with weird things around identity and race. You know, you always have these Indians who are like, oh yeah, man, I'm like full-blooded Dakota, full-blooded Nabe. And, you know, it's really funny, eh? Because there never has been any full-blooded this or that. Um, you know, like indigenous people's science was so, it is so incredibly more advanced than Western science. Like we knew about genetics and about you know like the need for you know a good gene pool um long before you know colonialism happened and, and there was a, a consistent practice over the years of marrying outside of your nation and you know uh, for diplomacy for romance and love for a number of issues and and you know so you know, you had you had a lot of interbreeding between Ojibwe and Cree and Mohawk and, you know, all over the place, right? And so, yeah, I always kind of laugh a little bit when everybody's like, oh, I'm full-blooded this or I'm full-blooded that because, you know, and that, that, that whole, that whole kind of, like, argument is being, is consistently pushed to by what they do in the States with the whole blood quantum um, way of, of measuring how Native American you are, right, you know? it's it's all inherently racist and just like construct created by white folks you know at the end of the day i think it comes down to like you know who you are like kinship lines are just as powerful and and you know impact you just as much culturally you know as you move through your life and you know and i you know i know for myself growing up with a german father you know and my, my adopted father was german and you know having gone to deutschland and spent time there and I remember watching the Berlin Wall, you know, uh, fall with my dad, you know, and that was a big deal. It, it, it was like, it was like, it was like, I don't know how to explain it, but like as a native kid living in Canada, even being really young, I was like, oh, wow, I wonder when the figurative Berlin Wall is going to fall here, but it's really good for my dad. And I remember thinking that when I was like, you know, like 10 years old when that shit happened. And so, you know, but I remember marking it and being like this is a very big moment and I remember having the same feeling as watching the fall of the Berlin Wall with my German like my Deutsch father watching the elder or the the, the warrior you know Ellen Gabriel um, from Kanasatage you know stand up in the national media and fight against the federal government during the Oka occupation I remember having the same like this is a bit ill when I was a little kid and I didn't quite comprehend everything around geopolitics colonialism and, and all of that stuff but I, but in my little children's mind I equated the Oka crisis at the same level as I felt when I watched the fall of the Berlin Wall with my German dad it was like oh, it was like wow so it, yeah it had that same spiritual significance almost you knew that it was something bigger buzz yeah so yeah <laughs> something that really caught me too in the book is just the concept of how connectedness helps us understand and how we're fighting the winter spirit can you like, unwrap that concept for us quickly the whole conversation around the winter spirit you know is is uh, i mean we're not even really supposed to talk about that spirit like to name it um 
Mm. You know, but but I shared it because I think a lot of people, you know, are struggling with the with with shared struggle in the native community and and uh, and beyond. You know, when they talk about the winter spirit, it's not like it's 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 necessarily like a total bad thing. You'll find that a lot. There's a duality in indigenous world and cosmovision about everything, and that at the end of the day, there's no real good or bad. There's just balance. There's light and dark. And there's a teaching that only the strongest go out and fast, you know, during the winter. When the snow is flying sideways, that's when the winter spirit comes out. And if you're not strong and you get caught out when the snow is flying sideways like that, the winter spirit can possess you, take over you, and you become a cannibal. You know, you'll eat yourself and you'll eat everything around you. And you know, and so for me, the way that that translates into the moment right now is I think that a lot of there's this horrific imbalance that exists on the planet between on the gender spectrum in our society with nature, you know, we're fundamentally changing the chemistry of the planet, impacting our collective ability to live on Mother Earth, you know, planet spaceship number one, you know, <laughs> we don't have a, another go at it, you know, Um but there's this sickness that that people have this hyper individualism you know this you know we're more connected than ever by technology but more um separated and alone and filled with anxiety than ever you know and 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 that's where you know um this this great work of tearing down, you know, systems of patriarchy and the rise of the sacred feminine creative principle and women's leadership across the planet, um, you know, the validation recognition of matrilineal, uh, you know, you know, leadership and bloodlines and you know, old school power of 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 the creators of women. Um, all of these things are coming back now to correct. You know what is uh, what is a horrific power imbalance that has been created by colonization, and you know a few other things too. You know, at the end of the day, when we're when we're when we're trying to deal with all of these like systems of oppression globally and whatnot, um, our work should really be aimed at localizing authority, localizing power, localizing decision making, community self determination in the interest of globalizing power. Um, you know, and that's the that's the solution to climate change. You know, it's 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 community self determination over energy and water and and um, designing those systems uh, and how we use those sacred elements uh, through a process of you know asking some very simple questions. You know, does this um, impact uh, our ability? You know, our future generations' ability to live on the planet in the way that we have for time immemorial. It's a very, very easy question. <laughs> well, and it, it, it's also, you, you mentioned this, that prophecy of the next generation of indigenous lineage is going to be that generation that kind of repurposes things. And I love that you end the book that way with this hope for even the city of Winnipeg being a hub for innovation and coming from indigenous sources. And I loved that vision. And uh, I, I think that that's something we can all look forward to and do you, do you truly believe that this is the generation that was prophesied about? I think that, 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 that we live in a very significant time um, 
you know, as I, as I get older, you know, I'm turning 45 this summer. I'm reminded of when I was a, a, a teenager and, you know, how the Beatles and Jimi Hendrix, and Led Zeppelin, Janis Joplin, all of the, all of these, all of these great performers of the sixties, you know, like, I remember it was like the fashion, you know, it was like an in thing. And, and, and then around the same time, um, you know, Smells Like Teen Spirit came out and Alive by Pearl Jam and, uh, you know, and there was a cultural moment that was just like wild, you know, um, yeah. And now, you know, I'm seeing that same thing with like, you know, except for now it's like Nirvana, Pearl Jam and all these like bands from the 90s and like 90s fashion and like all coming back again. And I don't know, you know, it, it's, it's like a, it's like a wild time. And, and, and I think like last two years ago, Greta Thunberg, you know, the little Swedish activist, when she came to Canada, um, you know, 1 million children marched for climate justice that Fridays for Future, you know, half a million alone in Montreal, 20,000 here in Winnipeg. And, you know, all these little kids, these, these little kids had signs, you know, saying Black Lives Matter, you know, saying, you know, uh, you know, support, stand with Wet'suwet'en, kill the pipeline. And so, yeah, I think that this generation of young people is certainly touched, you know, and going to make some change. Like, if you look at the Canadian labor market, for example, um, you know, most of the baby boomers are retiring. And we're faced with like a massive labor shortage and the highest rising demographic, the biggest demographic of new workers entering the workforce, our GDP is indigenous peoples and people of color, you know, brown and black people. And what that represents, you know, over the next decade is a transference of 25 cents on every dollar of the Canadian GDP to the most historically marginalized populations. And so, you know, the, the economic power in this current, you know, worldview that we're living in um, and this new generation of young people coming up that are empowered, you know, with this woke ass like mentality, but also straight up resources. Um, I, I feel like we're going to see, you know, some shifts in the Overton window in terms of what's possible, that'll be more like leaps, more like huge jumps um, compared to the incremental changes that we've seen over the last couple of decades. So yeah, I think, I think we'll see, you know, that this new generation come up, like my son's generation. I thought for sure growing up that I was going to be part of that generation that was going to turn off the switch and, you know, build the new world. And, um, but I, you know, I may not be part of that generation, but I feel really positive about contributing to towards this new generation coming up, making an even bigger, you know, impact and change than the generation that I'm a part of. Yeah, well, thank you so much, Clayton. I know I took a little bit more of your time, but uh, so good to talk to you and get some wisdom download today. I really appreciate it. Well, I appreciate it too. And, you know, I encourage all of the listeners to, you know, follow our work at 350 Canada. We're on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook. Um, and you can follow me at Cree Clayton on Twitter as well, just to see what I'm up to. I wear a lot of hats out there in the world and certainly encourage everybody to tune into Canada Reads. 
um, check out the debates and, uh, you know, coming up soon. Yeah, for sure. You know, make make sure and hit retweet on all the Canada reads content out there. So as many people get incredible titles that are being debated in this year's competition and best of luck to you. Hey, thanks so much. And thanks for having me. Thank you listeners for coming with me and my wonderful guest, Clayton Thomas Mueller on that journey. If you're not already inspired enough, I would recommend you immediately go pick up his book, Life in the City of Dirty Water. You can also see the short film based on the contents of the book on YouTube or CBC Gem and give it a read. It will be contending for Canada Reads on March 28th, which is a few days from now. You can keep up with Clayton on Twitter at CreeClayton and learn more about his activism at 350.org slash Canada. Let me know what you thought of this episode by tweeting us at Josiah Podcast and leaving a review on the podcast app that you're listening with. You can subscribe to our show and hear all of our other episodes at josiahpodcast.com. I'm your host, Josiah Sinanin, and I'll see you next week.